this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. It's very important for me to thank you from the beginning, because... Of course, my pleasure. Well, it's two things, so you have to say that twice now. The first is that you're staying up late to speak with me. Uh, I guess it's past 9 p.m. now in Beirut. So it means a lot to me that you're willing to do this at night. So thanks for that. The other one is that, well, it's hot in Beirut. It's hot in New York. And you're still going to deal with me on top of that. So uh, that's very flattering. Thank you for even <laughs> considering doing this this time of the year and at night. It, it means a lot. My pleasure on both counts. I should keep that for every episode now and just have that on repeat. Everything I say, my, my pleasure. <laughs> I, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, actually. And uh, I didn't realize that I was... So I, I've seen your pieces in Executive Magazine. And I would get sort of excited. It's like, oh, there's a new piece, Executive Magazine. It didn't cross my mind just to go to the Human Rights Watch website because they're all listed there. And it's a lot easier. <laughs> just to, didn't connect the dots properly. So I kind of went back. And I started rereading the recent pieces pretty much since October last year. And there's one piece that I think is still, it, it's, it's fantastic and it speaks to the moment. It's called There is a Price to Pay. And there's a fantastic video reel as well. Particularly in the last maybe week, two weeks, we've seen high profile incidents. Uh, Michel Chamon and, and Junie, who was released a few hours after his interrogation. You have Kendal Khatib, who I believe is still being held. Um, and it's happening, and I see it primarily on social media, uh, citizens expressing their rage, their disdain, and also several of them being called in, being interrogated. And this harkens back to me, and I'm, I'm glad this piece is, it, it speaks to the moment, harkens back to the years under Syrian occupation. And there, it feels like a repetition. So there's a lot to get into, but I want to start there. And maybe just your perspective, working in Human Rights Watch, if you see any hope on the horizon with regards to this issue, or is this an unfortunate reality today that we're going back to an era that many of us thought we kind of got out from in 2005? Just your own immediate reaction to what we're seeing right now. I mean, there's no question that what we were seeing is a coordinated attack on freedom of expression in the country. Um, and it's been happening for some time now, but unfortunately it's accelerated in recent days, particularly in the wake of the public prosecutor's decision to launch investigations into social media posts that insult the president. Mm -hmm. So Lebanon is perceived to be one of the Arab world's freest countries. But over the last two years, we've witnessed a really alarming increase in attacks on peaceful speech and expression. 
And this attack and this increase in attacks on speech has coincided with expressions of popular disillusionment with corruption, the mismanagement of public funds, and a worsening economic situation. So every time we start seeing, you know, more criticism of the government, you know, people getting more angry about corruption, more angry about the economic situation, we see a backlash from the government against free speech in the country with, you know, the aim of silencing, silencing criticism. Mm -hmm. And one of the most potent tools that powerful political and religious figures have used to silence criticism and silence their opponents are our criminal defamation and insult laws. Right, right. So these laws um, criminalize defamation against public officials and authorize imprisonment for up to one year uh, if you defame, defame a public official. If you insult the president, the flag, or the national emblem, you can be imprisoned for up to two years. And then if you insult the army, you can be imprisoned for up to three years. And then we have other laws that outlaw speech that's deemed to be insulting to religion or speech that incites sectarianism. We've had these laws on the books since Ottoman and French mandates eras. They're nothing new. Yeah. But what's new is the extent to which political uh, political figures, the public prosecutor, religious institutions are resorting to these laws uh, in order to target uh, target people who are criticizing them. One of the most telling numbers on you know, the rate at which these prosecutions are increasing are numbers that we obtained from the Cyber Crimes Bureau in Lebanon. So the Cyber Crimes Bureau is a unit within the Internal Security Forces, the ISF, and it's specialized in combating cybercrime and enhancing online security. Um, however, they, in recent years, much of their work has centered around investigating defamation and insult cases on social media. Um, and the numbers that we got from them were really incredibly alarming. You know, we, for the past few years, we've been hearing, you know, 10, 20, up to 50 cases per year of journalists and activists be summoned in for investigation uh, over you know, their social media posts. But the numbers that we got from the Cybercrimes Bureau showed that the problem was actually much bigger than we had previously anticipated. Hmm. So they told us, their numbers, that between 2015 and May of 2019, they investigated 3,599 cases relating to defamation, libel, and standards. Sorry, what were the dates again? What, were the, what was the time frame? Between January 2015 and May 2019. Over 3,000? 3,599 cases. And if that wow. number isn't alarming enough, the rate of increase is really quite alarming. So in 2015, the Bureau investigated 341 such cases. The year after that, 755. The year after that, 800. And in 2018, a whopping 1,451 defamation cases. Wow. So between 2015 and 2018, we saw a 325% increase in the number of investigations relating to defamation and insults. And this is before the protests began in October last year. So this is yeah. just a, an increase despite the recent sort of expression. Yeah, this was predating the, predating the protests. And our analysis of this is that after 2015, when there were the trash crisis protests and right. 
in a yeah. pretty large, large scale um, expressions of public anger and accusations of corruption against the government. You know, the government then started to rely on these laws to silence their critics and mm. sue them for defamation. Um, and there are several problems with Lebanon's defamation laws uh, that makes them not compliant with international law. So first, they are criminal laws, which means that they're in the penal code. Uh, they appear on your, if you're charged with one of these crimes, uh, they appear on your criminal record. And most importantly, you can be sentenced to prison time uh, for committing defamation or insult or libel. Um, and these, you know, the uh, Human Rights Committee, which is the UN body that interprets the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, mm. um, has said that imprisonment for defamation is never proportional. So, you know, most countries are doing away with putting people in prison uh, for peaceful, peaceful speech. So right. that's the first problem with the law. The second problem with the law is that public officials are given special protection from defamation. So if you defame a public official, the penalties are higher than if you were to defame uh, a regular individual. And that's also against international principles because public figures should not have any special protection from defamation. Quite the opposite, actually, because they're in public positions, they yeah. should—they are legitimately subject to public criticism. Um, and the third, yeah, yeah no, please, please go ahead. Yes, problem. this is. Um, by, by, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. This is the best introduction <laughs> I've ever had. I've done 180 episodes. This is the difference between Middle East <laughs> studies from Harvard University and Middle East studies AUB. I ask questions, you answer them. <laughs> So please. I mean, I've been working on this. I've been working on this for more than a year. So this no, but is, I think um, I think this is the best. I will just the whole episode will just be this, and then I'll <laughs> sit back and like that was great. So sorry, the third. I, I keep interrupting you, so that that's my no, fault. Please. please go ahead. Um, so the third uh, problem with the Lebanon's defamation laws is that truth is not always a defense. So even yeah. if what I say about you is true, I can be sentenced. You know, I, I can still be found guilty and sentenced to prison time. Right. And that's also quite alarming. And the fourth problem with Lebanon's criminal defamation laws, and I'll stop at the No, no, it's, it's worth <laughs> emphasizing all of them, please. So, yeah, the fourth. Um, <laughs> is that civilians that allegedly commit defamation against the army or insult any member of the military institution, including civilian employees of the military, um, are under the jurisdiction of the military court. Right, right. So they can be tried in military court. Um, and we, as Human Rights Watch, have documented some very serious due process concerns with the military court that have led us to make the conclusion that um, it's a human rights violation to try uh, citizen, Lebanese citizens in Lebanon's military court, given the formation of the court and given some of the uh, due process violations in, in the military court. These include the fact that the judges are not independent, they're appointed by the Ministry of Defense, that right. they don't necessarily have legal training. Um, that the, there's no you know, three-tiered three appeals process. Um, so there's a litany of, of uh, you know, violations that we've documented in the military courts that, in our view, make them very unsuitable for trying civilians. I'm going to link the, that article and the video reel because I think 
it's so worth reading and watching because you've, you've eloquently outlined the structural problems at reforming the Lebanese state vis-a-vis -vis human rights. And I think uh, it's, wor it's worth rereading. And, and there's one thing you brought up at the end, and I want to emphasize it. Um, and I believe it's a, it's a separate piece you wrote. Uh, Lebanon's military courts have no business trying civilians. Parliament should pass laws to remove civilians from military jurisdiction, which kind of emphasizes the point that these are not trained officials. Or sorry, they're not trained judges. These are just... Right. Yeah, and I want to get into that. They're not leg legally trained. Uh, sorry, yes, legally trained. Uh, is, it, is it simply that the military courts are doing this by design? That you stifle dissent? intentionally this way or is this just a outdated sort of issue that it's never been properly addressed i mean it's hard to ascribe motives or intentions mm. you know, the law has been this way for you know, many many years um, but we you know human rights watch and many other lebanese human rights organizations have consistently raised concerns with the makeup of the military court, with the processes of the military court, and with some of the violations that we and other organizations have documented mm. regarding trials of civilians in military court. Um, we've had meetings with the former head of the military court who've made our concerns you know, very clear. Um, unfortunately, Lebanese parliament has not taken a decision to remove civilians from the jurisdiction of the military court. And sorry, can um, I just ask, at a time, just sorry, Kendal Khatib's case is under that jurisdiction. Yes, right. The, the military prosecutor has been increasingly resorting to the military court in order to prosecute individuals who are quote-unquote uh, tarnishing the reputation of the army, harming the reputation of the army, you know, right, those right. kinds of uh, those kinds of charges. So it does seem to be used as a tool in order to stifle dissent, particularly, you know, against the military institution, even when that criticism is legitimate and it's you know founded in credible evidence and allegations. And, and if this were to change, it would have to go through the Lebanese parliament. There's, it would have yeah. to be addressed that way. And there's been no, I'm, I'm curious in your interactions with previous regimes and the current regime, is this even on the table in terms of enacting reform, at least when it comes to that particular issue? I mean, do, do you have people, do you have a receptive audience? Yes and no. So the so the former head of the military courts, Brigadier General Hussein Abdullah, he was quite receptive to our engagement with him around the issue of particularly trying journalists in military courts. So mm -hmm. there were several cases where journalists who criticized the army ended up being prosecuted in military courts. And what Brigadier General Hussein Abdullah started doing was started to declare non-jurisdiction over these cases and refer them back to the civilian judiciary. Right, okay. But that was something that he took on his own initiative right. rather right. than, you know, the law says that you should do that. That was a you know, personal mm. decision that he made to save himself the trouble of being criticized by the media for trying civilians and journalists in particular in military court. He decided to just do away with the hassle and refer, declare non-jurisdiction and refer the cases to the civilian judiciary. So that's really out so of his own personal have, personal initiative, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. Right, yeah. and it's because he had a, a you know, a, he, 
sentenced a prominent journalist, Hanin Ghaddad, who's based in Washington, D.C. You are the, six you, months. You are now my favorite <laughs> guest. You know why? All you do is segues for me. That was going to be my next point. She's right. referenced even at the top of that piece. It's a yes. quote from her. It reminds me so much of the years I was on the streets of Beirut protesting, in my respect, similar grievances. So it took yeah. me back to 2005. And Hanin, she's a classmate of mine at AUB. We actually studied Middle East studies together at AUB, wow. and this is many years ago. So I, I kind of, I mean, it just for me, it was a bit personal. Hence, I, I read it maybe too many times. <laughs> so yeah, please, it, going back to Hanin's case, which is an important one. I think it's actually yeah, it's, probably it's the most important one. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. generated a lot of backlash against the military court. So the, the military court sentenced Hanin Ghaddad to six months imprisonment for, right. her for remarks that she made that were deemed to be critical of the army uh, in absentia. She was in DC at the time. Yes. And there was you know, a huge media backlash both in Lebanon and internationally. Um, and as a result, the Brigadier General Hassan Abdullah was supposed to fly to the US and his visa got canceled to the US. Right. As a result of that case. Um, as a result of that case. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so after that, he made the decision to, as you know, he said to me, avoid this headache and just start referring these cases to the, um, to the civilian judiciary. Well, that's interesting. So it's almost like there was enough pressure to make that reversal, but that only depends on one particular person willing to do it. Right. Otherwise, exactly. it, nothing that was, there's nothing legally that was changed in, in the way. Mm -hmm. that, right. Exactly. Can I get to um, the issue? So we have a new head of the military court now, and yes. it remains to be seen whether he'll take the same approach or not. I'm going to just go one step back in terms of truth. And that's, mm -hmm. that's not, even if you're saying the truth, you can still be detained. Can you expand on that? What, is, what does that mean exactly? Does it have to be tied in with a defamation? Or is it just the truth on its own is enough to get you in jail? So let's say I call you a liar. And you indeed had, you know, I had evidence that you lied about something. I can still, you know, whether or not you lied is irrelevant because I used an insult against you. I called you a liar. Right. Um, and therefore I, I'm... I could be criminally liable for that if you decided to file a complaint against me. But can I ask you just theoretically, if if I uh, if I committed a crime and it's documented, and you and you share that information saying he's a criminal, is that also enough to put me? Or sorry, to put you in jail for just calling me a criminal? So it's a very yeah. loose loose definition of uh, yeah. defamation. It's probably right. a very thin. So I, you know, I can call, I can say you committed a crime and point to the evidence. Right. But if I say you're a criminal, I'm insulting you. I'm ascribing an you know, a, a, a adjective to you. I see. Um, and that doesn't matter if it's true or not. Um, that's not a defense. And this is where it becomes cherry picking, where the where individuals can abuse this to their advantage. And right, right. Exactly. But I mean. What we documented is that a lot of these cases never even reach, uh, they never even reach the judiciary. They usually end after the investigation. So what happens is a person gets a call from, let's say, the Cyber Crimes Bureau, right. a WhatsApp call. Yeah. Um, really? Do they call on WhatsApp? Yes. Are you kidding? Yes. No. 
<laughs> so yeah. Just, uh, so some crazy. people get a WhatsApp call. Uh, hello, this is the Cyber Crimes Bureau. We're calling you in for an investigation or for a cup of coffee uh, tomorrow at whatever time. You know, what did I do? Why am I being called in? I don't know. You'll find out tomorrow. So basically what we found is that the law itself is extremely problematic, but equally problematic are the procedural irregularities that we documented at every stage of the investigation in the criminal defamation cases that we documented. So we documented that the prosecution and security agencies often didn't follow standard procedures and in many instances actually violated the law. So for example, a lot of individuals who were sued for defamation were arrested in quite a violent way by armed guards in a way that was really vastly disproportionate to their alleged crime, which is defamation. So, you know, one example that really always comes to my mind is the arrest of Hazem Al Amin. He's the co founder and editor in chief of uh, Daraj. Mm, yes. And he was accused, he, some person filed a complaint, a defamation complaint against him. So one day, 10 armed police officers from the internal security forces storm his offices uh, and arrest him. Um, and they, I mean, they are in military formation, they're you know, fully armed, and they're going to arrest a journalist. Um, so Al-Amin said, Hazem told us, the way that they were driving in the street then, the sirens and the convoy, you'd think that they caught Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, not the journalist. Um, and then we also documented interrogators using tactics that were physically or psychologically violent during the interrogations. So people were insulted, people were humiliated, they made fun of the way that people looked, they uh, threatened to use personal information against some people, so that, you know, there was a lot of abuse in the interrogation itself. Yeah. And on several occasions, um, the defendants told us that the interrogators violated their privacy and looked through their phones and their WhatsApp conversations and their social media accounts, even uh, without a judicial order to do so. And that's illegal. And they used um, the defamation sort of terminology there. They said you, you yeah. were right, right. Yeah. And, and even though, I mean, it's a public post that you're accused of defamation yeah. and there's really no need for a lengthy investigation and looking through other, you know, other social media accounts and other posts. I mean, that to me seems just like an excuse to invade somebody's privacy rather than a legitimate aim of a defamation investigation. I mean, sure. by definition, if you committed defamation, you said something in a public forum. So there shouldn't be a need to go through somebody's social media accounts and go through their phones to investigate a crime that by its nature is public. From your, from your experience, are they just simply looking at Instagram posts and, and tweets? Is that kind of the, the, the sophistication involved? That they just sort I of, because I'm curious what, that's such a severe uptick in cases. I mean, we're talking thousands over a very, very short period of time. And I, I, I'm assuming they're all just sort of either tweets or retweets or very simple posts that suddenly you're getting a, a WhatsApp call as a result of that. Is, is it that they just sort of monitor these platforms and look? Or are they being sort of, are they being reported? Yeah. I mean, how, how does it work? So we did try to investigate to see if there was any evidence of surveillance being mm -hmm. used to track these people. And we didn't find any evidence of that. Yeah. In the cases that we documented, it was usually the aggrieved person, so the person who 
thinks right. that they were defamed, right. filing a complaint with the public prosecution against the person who allegedly defamed them. Um, in some cases, though, uh, so in the case of uh, if the defamation was committed against the president, the public prosecutor can himself uh, initiate uh, uh, an investigation. So the president doesn't have to complain or right. file a complaint. The public prosecutor can himself initiate a complaint as a matter of public interest. Um, and that's the order that we saw a few days ago from the public prosecutor. So the public prosecutor took it upon himself to issue an order telling a security agency to investigate all social media posts that insult the president. And he could do this because our laws say that if the insult or defamation was committed against the president, the president doesn't have to file a personal complaint. It can be initiated as a matter of public interest. And that's, I mean, quite um, bad and not compliant with international standards. And I don't mean to be facetious here. I actually am really asking this honestly. Is it a matter of arresting a million people? I mean, these are, there's so many, I'm, I'm going to just give you a silly example. Uh, Michel Chamon's video rant on Instagram, his sort of, his rage at mm -hmm. the collapse of, of Lebanon. And despite it being deleted from his side, it's been shared by thousands, if not more, and people are still able to look at it online. So what do you do? Do you chase down everyone who's retweeted or reposted that video? Or is it really just yeah. a maybe sloppy form of intimidation, hoping that this that this creates enough fear that people will stop doing this? I think it is the I think it's the latter. So mm. there's no way that they have the capabilities or I think the will to go after every single person who's shared the yeah. shared the tweet. But by creating an environment where people are constantly afraid that what they say may end up may end them put them yeah. uh, you know in in a security agency for investigation that itself creates a chilling effect on free speech in the country right. so i mean i i've started thinking twice before posting something um you know usually i try to that you know post anything that I w would have posted anyway, but the recent, you know, very sharp increase in the number of summons and prosecutions for social media posts does make any reasonable person think twice. And that's why it's so dangerous. And that's what we tried to say in our report, that yes, actually the number of people who have gone to prison for defamation is quite low, but that's sort of irrelevant. You know, you're, there's a climate of intimidation and fear that doesn't need to be taken to the courts. Just by calling in, you know, calling randomly right. calling in people for investigation, you don't know what tweets could land you could land you in a, a prison cell. You don't know um, what's okay and what's not okay. You don't, you know, what's okay today might not be okay tomorrow. Sure. Um, so yeah. this kind of arbitrary nature of the of the prosecution is also in itself creating a climate of intimidation. Um, so Lebanon can still get away with being one of the freest countries in the Arab world because we don't jail our dissidents. But they're doing, you know, they're, they're silencing people before they even get to that place. Um, yeah. And after, you know, after these investigations where we've documented, you know, people stay for eight hours, sometimes overnight. Right, right. Um, 
they're usually forced to sign pledges yeah. saying that they're going to remove a post or pledge not to insult so-and-so person in the future. I mean, that those pledges are also quite problematic because here you're, um, you know, you're, you're being forced to remove something before you even appear before a court, before a judge decides that whether or, you know, whether or not this post constitutes defamation. You're already being silenced. And after the investigation, most people don't know where the case is. So they say, okay, you're free to go now. You'll hear from us, you know, about a court date. Many, most people actually, whose cases we documented, never heard back. But that's constantly something that's in the back of their minds. It's constantly something that they're thinking about. That's constantly something that, you know, may deter them from posting again about the same person. You know, people will say, I already have a case against me by you know, so-and-so politician, and I'm not going to tweet about them again, because they may feel that they're being you know, monitored more because there's an ongoing case, or they just don't want to go through this pretty horrific experience again. So you, yourself, you become, you know, even if you don't feel it, you start self-censoring. You start, you know, one person told us, you know, I used to, you know, I used to just post without thinking. Now I don't think five times, I don't think ten times, I think a million times before I post something that could be interpreted as being insulting or offensive to public figures. Um, and that's, you know, stifling very necessary public debate that we need in Lebanon, particularly at this very critical juncture when the economy is falling apart, the social fabric of society is falling apart, um, and we're, we're, we're not seeing any real leadership to get us out of this crisis, you know, the, quite the opposite. We're just seeing parties fighting amongst themselves to divide what remains of, of the spoils. It's a very bleak uh, assessment of where we are, but it's, it's an honest sort of take. And I, I'm glad that you even said yourself that at times you may hesitate at posting something, not because you don't want to, but because you don't want to. It is not just a simple phone call or a WhatsApp call. It's, it's proper intimidation that you're being yeah. watched. And uh, I think at the same time, and I, maybe you may agree or disagree, I don't know, that the ability for a number of people to show up very quickly and defend somebody like Michel Chamon and block a highway and, and even sort of demand that individual's release, putting pressure may be the only salvageable sort of thing we have left, that people are engaged to the point that they're not retweeting or sharing only, that they're actually trying to get him out. But that can only happen, maybe that, that cannot be repeated too much before people literally start staying away from the scene, that people get tired, their patience runs course. But I think that's the only thing that sort of stands in the way of complete sort of intimidation. As long as there's yeah. that, that politics of fear, I think it's being chipped at gradually, but at the same time, it's almost like it's glued back together by the regime when needed. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a good thing, you know, the good phenomenon that we've started seeing since October 17. Yeah. So before October 17, loads of journalists and activists would go to a security agency for interrogation, spend several hours there and leave, and nobody would know or care because. It, it just wasn't, uh, you know, a very public issue. Right. Yeah. But after October 17, we have started seeing calls by activists and other individuals to protest in front of the security agency where right. the person who's being investigated is right. being held. Um, 
you know, and that that's really positive because they that leads to media coverage, that leads to some you know international pressure, that leads to you know just just a feeling that people are aware, people are watching, and this isn't going to go unnoticed. Right, and but and the and the, the, the good work of groups like Human Rights Watch and your own work, documenting it and making it as accessible as possible. I think that feeds in right. all the time. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, we've, we've really tried to make sure that we are documenting most of these cases, that people who go through these often very traumatic experiences um, can, can, you know, talk about their experience, they can right. have their stories heard and then reflected in our reporting. Right. But obviously that's not enough. What sure. we really need in Lebanon is a change in the laws. So our laws are vague, they're outdated, they're broad, and they're being used as a tool for retaliation by political parties and religious institutions against people who are criticizing them. Um, and, you know, in, in a sense, the laws exist. So it's within a person's right to file a defamation claim against somebody who they think has wronged them. Right. Um, unfortunately, our laws go much further and they're extremely punitive. So what we've been trying to do in collaboration with you know, a bunch of other human rights and media freedom organizations in Lebanon is try to advocate with Parliament to change the law. Now, there is a law in Parliament that's being debated. It's called the New Media Law. Mm. And the law was introduced more than 10 years ago by MP, former MP Rassan Khaybin. New who Media. Yeah. <laughs> Who has championed, you know, a lot of human rights issues in Lebanon, as mm. well as Maharat, a very prominent free speech NGO here in Lebanon, and they introduced this law more than ten years ago in order to change some of the punitive, you know, measures around defamation and insults and bring our national law more in line with international regulations. Right. Right. Um, unfortunately. This law has been debated and changed so many times in Parliament that the version, the draft that we have now, would actually further restrict freedom of expression rather than expand the space for freedom of expression. So it's it establishes crimes where there previously were none. It increases penalties for some defamation. It's made before we didn't have any provisions for repeat offenses. Now, if you're if you're accused twice of defamation, let's say, the penalty the second time is higher. Um, the fines are much higher than they were before. Mm. So anyway, the, the law is quite, um, you know, it, it's not, it does not abide by Lebanon's obligations under international law and it would set us back many years rather than move us forward. So as a group of NGOs, we're trying to advocate with the parliamentary committee where the law is currently being debated to try to change the very problematic provisions of the law and bring it more in line with international standards. But unfortunately, mm. um, and this is reflective of the way that the government works with civil society, um, parliament has not been very transparent with us at all. I mean, the method of interaction is not transparent and it's not uh, it's not based on a meaningful consultation or partnership with civil society. You know, as an example of the lack of transparency, we've been asking for the latest draft of this law that's currently being debated, a law that will affect the entire media, media sector, and it's not been shared with us. We obtained a leaked version in April 2019, so more than a year ago, 
and it was a leaked version. It wasn't officially given to us by a parliamentarian. Yet, we were asked by Parliament, as civil society, to comment on the law. And they said, well, you don't need to see the law, you can just give us broad principles. And then they gave us only four days to comment. Um, so really, it's just a you know, tick, you know, check, tick box exercise rather than a genuine attempt at consulting civil society about this law. And they don't, and show, you, they don't show you the law? It's really just I, we haven't seen it. You've never seen it. So yeah, we, I yeah. mean, we've seen we've seen the leaked version from last year. Right. I don't think it's been amended too much. But a, it was a leaked version. It wasn't given. You know, we didn't have an official copy that was given to us by uh, Parliament, and it might have changed since then. But we don't know because they're refusing to share the latest version with us. Um, and this raises, you know, a lot of concerns about access to information in Lebanon. So we have sure. this yeah. access to information law that was passed in 2017. Um, but it's not being applied. It's uh, you know the law was passed without setting the resources within each state institution to be able to to provide the information that's requested. So a lot of information is not in digital format. So it's literally impossible to get this information. Um, yet they passed this law because they need, the international community needed to see that we had an access to information law. Now, actually, um, you know, this ties into another issue that I wanted to get into towards the end. But let me bring it up now because I think it's it's quite telling. Uh, there's another piece you wrote that kind of links uh, these issues with the IMF package. I think it's a it's a fairly recent piece. It was back in May. Yeah. Uh, it's titled "IMF Should Prioritize Human Rights in Lebanon Loan Negotiations." And this isn't sort of uh, cosmetic surgery. This is really getting to the the issue of disenfranchised groups. And their, and their rights. This is a bit of a segue, but I want to ask you, in your experience, knowing that we have not seen much uh, potential, at least as of now, with the IMF negotiations, do you see that as maybe a last resort, where if you don't have a parliament that's even willing to share with you the, the basics, and, uh, and, and in, in a way, and I think you've hinted at this, that there's been a, not just an escalation, but it's, it's happening right now as we record, that there's a there's a, there's this almost like a peak, and this is during the negotiations process. Is this yeah. the only way out, or is this really just um, where do you where do you see hope at least in terms of taking human rights issues and making them part of this reform that we're all mm -hmm. talking about, bringing it mm -hmm. sort of into the discussion of accountability or, or yeah. transparency and all of the above. Because I'm curious that I've, I just had never not seen that link before, and I wanted to pick your brain on this. So I wrote this piece in May last month, which were slightly more hopeful times. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how bad it's gotten. Yeah. That's just a month ago, and it's already yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time, there was there seemed to be a real genuine will from the government to engage with the IMF seriously. Uh, and they had just drafted the economic reform plan, the reform plan for the first time ever, you know, defined or, you know, showed what the losses in the Lebanese financial sector right. were. Yeah. So yeah. there seemed to be a genuine will to engage with the IMF and reform uh, and use this money to, you know, to start building a productive economy and reforming the public sector and, and decreasing pu public debt, etc. 
But what we wanted to make sure was that human rights weren't sidelined in the negotiations between the IMF and with the and the Lebanese government. Mm -hmm. So the IMF's, you know, its ultimate aim is it's going to give a loan to a country, but the IMF wants its money back, right? It wants to ensure that the country it's giving its money to has is able to then pay the money back. That's yeah. that's you know, in a nutshell, the IMF's purpose. Yeah. Um, the way that they've done it in previous countries is, you know, decrease. Pub you need to decrease the deficit. You need to decrease the debt. So, mm -hmm. you know, quite, you know, common sense. You decrease government spending and you increase government revenue. Yeah. And the way that they've done this in other contexts is increase government revenue through increasing taxes, right. decrease government spending through austerity, privatization, decreasing spending on social services. Mm -hmm. What we were trying to say in Lebanon is that this formula here is not going to work. Because it'll if hit the really, hardest hit, right? It'll be... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll hit the hardest hit. So already Lebanon is a country with a very poor safety safety net. Already marginalized communities are suffering a lot under the you know economic crisis, and they're paying the highest price for the economic crisis. Um, but in Lebanon, we also have a sectarian system. And a clientelist network, where you know, because the state has not provided quality access to education, to healthcare, to right, work, right. you have to rely on your sectarian leader for access to these very basic services that the state should be providing. So, if the IMF were to, so if the IMF were to come and say, okay, we're going to decrease spending, you know, already insufficient spending on these vital public services. What it's going to do is make people even more dependent on their sectarian leaders, who, right, you know, right. because of the way that the system is set up, are resistant to change. Right. So what we wanted to do is um, ensure that they prioritized rights. So that includes, you know, not uh, putting regress, not imposing regressive taxes, which are taxes that are applied on everybody equally. And an example of that is the VAT, VAT tax. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everybody, then Has poor, to, rich, yeah. you all pay the same right. VAT tax. Right. A progressive tax that you know places a higher burden on the rich rather than the poor would make much more sense in Lebanon, particularly in a country where the poor, the rich actually pay very little taxes, um, and uh, and improve the tax collection infrastructure. So before you even look at increasing taxes on poor people, make sure that. The taxes that you already do have are being collected because tax right. evasion is notorious in Lebanon. So that's yeah. one set of recommendations. And then the other, you know, bucket falls into the decreasing government revenues. Um, so some of the recommendations that we've, you know, we've heard being floated around are cut public sector, uh, remove subsidies Sub to the yeah. electricity mm -hmm. sector. Yeah. Um, but those could also end up disproportionately harming the poor. So what we wanted to stress for the IMF is the need to have an alternative before you, for example, remove subsidies for the electricity sector. And that includes you know, a comprehensive reform plan for the electricity sector that ensures that everybody's able to access electricity. Once you have this access, then you can start decreasing the subsidies and supplementing them with directed uh, directed subsidies to to the poorest so that they're able to afford access to electricity. Do you sense though that if if let's say the balance sheet at the end of the day is the is the priority for the IMF, do you see what you're saying fitting into the negotiations, or is it is it largely absent? I know that I'm not asking. I mean, 
I'm assuming you're not there at the negotiations roundtable, yeah. sort of. But I mean, is it is it their concern at this point, or do you see it as a non-issue? And I mean it on both I, sides, the Lebanese side yeah. and, and the IMF. Of course. So for the IMF, I mean, we've seen in recent years that they have started paying more attention to impacts on you know, social fabric of society. They've started paying more attention to issues of corruption. Um, so I, I do see that there would be a genuine will mm. from the IMF to engage very seriously around these issues. Okay. Because ultimately they would help put Lebanon on a more sustainable development path, which would ultimately enable Lebanon to pay uh, the debts that it owes the IMF. So it's, you know, in the end it is about the numbers. But right. you know, our argument is that this is the, given Lebanon's social fabric and the situation of Lebanon, this makes much more sense for creating the conditions of a sustainable economy than, you know, very, very deep austerity measures and like right. a traditional austerity IMF program. And at the same time, avoiding the worst aspects of what I guess it's now crony capitalism, that kind of, exactly. yeah, that you don't, exactly. you, you want to make sure this doesn't entrench it further. Exactly. And you start moving away from these clientelist networks and the need to and you know, and the need to resort to your sectarian zaim for very basic services right. to those provided by the state. And I'm going to link all these uh, pieces to the episode because I think it's it's almost like you're you're documenting the protest movement and really at, at its core what it's all about. So there's one other subject and it's as as important as anything we've discussed. Another outdated law that needs reform. That's the sponsorship rules the kafada system and i think that's been discussed so thoroughly in recent months and that's good it's something that was not really it was there it was on the table but it wasn't a sort of front and center debate so to speak and it, it was definitely i mean so remarkable to see almost like it may have been the first time uh strikes by was it uh, Ramco? Ramco. Ramco. i keep I, by, by default, I still say Sukhine, Ramco employees. And they, they protested and they said no. Now, even if abuse was used, even if they were silenced, the worst ways, I mean, intimidated to stop. And I don't know what the exact agreement was with the Bangladeshi embassy. I, I don't know exactly what the, maybe no one knows actually exactly what was discussed in those. We don't know the details of yeah. the deal, yeah. But they stopped, the protests stopped. But the fact that it happened is a new phenomenon. For, for Lebanon. Definitely. And then of course you have these horrifying scenes of domestic workers asleep. I mean, just on, on the road. And it's not, I mean, I think it's still happening actually. Is it by the Ethiopian consulate? Ethiopian consulate. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's just literally, I mean, it's an ongoing issue. But you also have plenty of protesters, you have plenty of journalists covering it. And it is a serious debate. Now, there's a quote, and I think it's attributed to Kamil Abu Sleiman, the previous Minister of Labor. He calls it a modern-day slavery. Yeah. Now, that's also a refreshing sort of expression of reality. And it's coming yeah. from the regime. The previous one, but a minister in the previous government, they are one of these disenfranchised groups that has been hit hard by the, by the currency collapse and the financial mess. Do you sense that there's any positive strands in, in the mix here that in, in a way because people are speaking up because that because the fear is no longer there that you could have employees protesting you can you can have domestic workers demanding their rights 
even while the economy is tanking, even while there's a crisis. Do you see any hope here in the mix? And this could include, by the way, the current regime, the current Minister of Labor, or yeah. it could be uh, from civil society, from, from, from literally from, from Lebanese who have used this system and seeing it maybe as unfit today. Just mm -hmm. that, I mean, is there any, any positive trends on yeah. that issue? So it's not something that I don't think any of us would have thought we'd be able to say even a year ago, but there does seem to be some positive momentum in reforming the kafala system with the ultimate end of completely abolishing the system. So as Stu mentioned, it's a system that is, it's an immigration system for migrant domestic workers in particular that's abusive and ex exploitative. And it um, puts the workers at the mercy of employers completely. So one of the most abusive aspects of the kafala system is that when migrant workers come to work here in the country, they sign a contract with their employer, and they can't terminate this contract without the consent of their employer. Right. So as you can imagine, that places them in you know, very exploitative and forced labor situations. Yeah. And some of the some of the main abuses that we've documented range from non-payment of wages, forced confinement in the home, um, to much more serious. Uh, you know, sexual, physical, verbal violence. Um, and we did a you know, pretty um, pivotal study back in 2008 where we found that migrant workers were dying at a rate of one per week from non-natural causes. The leading causes wow. of death being suicide or injuries sustained from jumping off of a balcony while trying to escape the house. Mm -hmm. We tried to replicate the study in 2018 and 10 years on to see if the situation had changed, but unfortunately we weren't able to obtain the numbers uh, that we obtained in 2008. We got the numbers from the embassies with the causes of death and we weren't able to obtain these numbers anymore. So we couldn't do a comparison. But it, I mean, the situation doesn't seem to have changed. And we yeah. constantly hear horrifying reports of migrant domestic workers either sustaining very serious injuries from trying to escape the house or, or, um, or, or committing suicide. Or, right, right, yeah. yeah. So this is kind of, you know, the kafala system. It's, you know, Workers can't leave their, their job without consent of the employer. Um, the, they're not migrant domestic workers, or rather domestic workers generally, aren't covered under the labor law. So they're not granted the protections that other workers in Lebanon are granted. Right. And right. these include the minimum wage, days of rest, annual leave, paid sick leave, you know, all of these very, very basic labor rights that every other worker in Lebanon gets, domestic workers don't get. Uh, and then on top of that, you have uh, a justice system that's completely unresponsive to their needs um, and does not uh, adequately investigate their their complaints. So we did an investigation also more than 10 years ago at this point into the way that the justice system deals with complaints filed by migrant domestic workers. And overwhelmingly, we found that the justice system favors the employer. Right and does not impose adequate penalties on employers for abusing their migrant domestic workers. So all of this has created a culture in Lebanon where you know, people treat migrant domestic workers as if they were their servants, um, mm -hmm. as if they were their property. 
And this is, has been very clearly reflected in the really horrifying scenes we've been seeing in front of the, Brit in front of the Ethiopian consulate, where uh, employers who can't afford to pay their workers anymore are just dumping them yeah. in front of the yeah. in front of the consulate as if this you know this worker is wasn't a human being that you know, they're just I mean it's it's mind-boggling but you know to me it really is a reflection of this kafala system that has allowed uh, employers Lebanese employers to treat these workers as less than human you have this system that allows you to get away with basically having a full-time servant in your home that's at your beck and call 24-7 that you only have to pay $150 to. Um, so it's just a system that enables this abuse and then normalizes it. So people feel entitled to a domestic worker in Lebanon even though really they shouldn't be able to afford to have a full-time live-in domestic worker because it's so cheap to employ a migrant domestic worker that you know most families in Lebanon have them even if their house is not properly equipped to host an additional person absolutely which is why you see you know migrant domestic workers being put to sleep in the kitchen or not provided with enough food um, now the, the really great thing that former labor minister Kamil Abu Sulaiman did was recognize this problem he called it out for what it was, yeah. modern-day slavery, and he made it a priority to abolish the system. Mm -hmm. So he created a working group that's headed by the ILO and comprises several NGOs, including us, Amnesty International, CAFA, Legal Agenda. Um, and he tasked us with giving him a roadmap for how to start dismantling the system and then start giving him uh, you know, recommendations on each part of the puzzle. So as a working group, uh, we started meeting more than a year ago at this point, mm. and we decided that, you know, of course, you know, I'll preface this by saying that the ultimate end goal is to abolish the kafala system and yeah. to have migrant domestic workers included in the labor law, and yeah. they should receive the same protections and rights that any other worker in Lebanon gets. And that, you know, we made that very clear. Yes. But until that, you know, that needs, uh, you know. Uh, parliament to ratify this amendment to the labor law. So until such time, we proposed a series of you know, practical measures that the labor ministry could take that would significantly improve the lives of micro-domestic workers and start chipping away at the kafala system. Right. And for us, given that micro-domestic workers aren't covered under the labor law, there's no other law that regulates their presence in the country and grants them rights and protections. The only legal document that they have is the contract that they sign with their employer. But the problem with these contracts is, I mean, they're really awful contracts that are not labor rights compliant, they don't comply right, with international right. labor standards, and the contract itself doesn't, for example, give the worker the right to terminate their contract without yes. consent of the employer. Right. So, you know, given the lack of legal protections and given that the standard unified contract was the only legal document that the worker has when she comes to Lebanon, we decided to, and it's a measure that can be adopted by the labor ministry, it doesn't need buy-in from anyone else, we decided to start with the contract. Mm -hmm. So the contract that we drafted and hammered out over more than a year of negotiations um, is one that would essentially grant migrant domestic workers the same rights that other workers get under the labor law. 
even though they're not covered under the labor law. So it would right. try to remedy this imbalance. Mm -hmm. And it would also recognize a lot of the you know, current problems with the kafala system and seek to rectify them. So for example, um, one of the provisions that we included in the contract was that workers should have their own private room with adequate light and ventilation and have a door that locks and they, they're the only ones that have the, the key. Now that's usually a level of detail that you don't include in a work contract. <laughs> but we're starting, you know, we're starting from zero, you know, under zero, you know, ten feet under. So we're we're trying to recognize what are the most serious problems in the way that migrant domestic workers are treated today, yeah. uh, and how can we put safeguards in the contract to make sure that these actions are very clearly, in, uh, you know, not compliant with the contract, and employers could face legal penalties if they violate the terms of the contract. Um, but that's okay. So yeah. can I ask you though, does this matter if a, if a new minister comes in or is it or? So the current labor minister has committed to moving this work forward. Oh, and okay. we actually yeah. met with her on fr last Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've been trying to hammer out the details of this, uh, of this migrant, uh, of this contract for migrant domestic workers mm -hmm. over the past couple of months with her team. And last Friday was, uh, you know, one of the final sessions that we have to finalize the contract. But do you still see this as something at, at this stage, the minister sees this as something that's, that needs to be abolished? Yeah. Or are we not there yet? Are we just sort of... I mean, the minister talks of reforming kafala rather right. than abolishing right. kafala. So it's still in but the reform. Right. Yeah. Right. But we are trying to you know, push the conversation forward. Yeah. And the contract that we ended, you know, we saw on Friday from the Labour Ministry was one that really would have been unthinkable even a few months ago. I okay. mean, if this contract is adopted in the form that we saw, and that's an if, um, it would really, you know, start changing the culture around having migrant domestic workers mm -hmm. in your home and start rectifying this power imbalance. But of course, enforcement is key because you can have sure. the best contract, yeah. and if there's no enforce, you know, inspection and enforcement and accountability by the labor ministry for employers who violate the contract, then the contract doesn't matter. I mean, the rule of law is that one issue that's always absent from any. I mean, you can talk about everything, and then when it's unenforceable, it becomes a non-issue. Exactly. You so know, that's why, you know, in in parallel, mm -hmm. um, the ILO. Uh, is work the International Labor Labor Organization is working with the Labor Ministry to develop a complaints mechanism, mm -hmm. a hotline uh, through which uh, migrant domestic workers can you know file complaints and then a, a kind of a referral mechanism within the ministry that ensures that these complaints are being dealt with and referred to the appropriate unit to take the necessary action. Can I ask you, um, in, in your experience, do you attribute the progress? to domestic workers themselves, migrant domestic workers, sort of being more visible. And I, and I mean that literally on the streets, not visible yeah. from balconies or visible trying to escape. I mean visible as in protesting. Do, do you attribute that yeah. to the story? I mean, I, I think it is a really big part. So mm. the migrant domestic workers formed a union a few years ago. Unfortunately, the union wasn't recognized by the state because um, domestic, because domestic workers aren't covered under the labor law, right. they yeah. are not. They don't have the right to form a, a labor union. Yeah. But, right. but you know, for us, the right to associate is key, and that applies whether or not they're 
covered under the labor law, right. under Lebanon's labor law. Um, so the domestic workers union has really been um, a very strong actor. They've tried to, you know, engage with, they've engaged with us, they've engaged with civil society, they've made their demands heard, and they've been, you know, a very important vehicle for advocating for themselves. And it's been really truly inspiring to see the work and activism of these, of these women who have almost zero rights, but have tried to advocate for a better future in Lebanon for themselves and for other migrant domestic workers who come to work here. Um, so, you know, obviously one of our main demands is that the labor ministry or the government recognize um, this, this union and yeah. negotiate with them. So one of the unfortunate um, things about this process, the you know, kafala abolishment process and the working group that we're a part of is that it lacks representation from migrant domestic workers. So in an ideal process, migrant domestic workers would have had a very prominent seat at the table. Sure. Now, unfortunately, yeah. that wasn't the case. Um, we didn't pick who was in the working group, but we did try to ensure that the voices of migrant domestic workers were heard. We insisted that the contract be put up for a national consultation that included migrant domestic workers. Uh, and that took place March 10 to 11. And it was hosted by the labor ministry. Um, the ILO also had focus groups with migrant domestic workers where they gave feedback on every single article of the contract and they made very clear what their main issues and demands are. And that, I mean, was incredibly useful for, you know, for us as drafters of the contract because yeah. we are not living their realities. So only they will be able to point out some things that are... You know, that could have been interpreted in ways that would have harmed them or, you know, things that they wanted to have mentioned in the contract that we wouldn't have thought of. So their, their participation in the process really was key. But it's a reminder how basic, I mean, it's, it's not that the expectations are low, it's that we're adjusted to such low standards that it's almost every step of the way there has to be some intervention to make sure it's done properly. Otherwise, it'll just sit and die. And I, I really applaud not just Human Rights Watch, but all, all groups and uh, sort of and the domestic workers themselves and the protests and all of that. It's a very challenging issue, but it's on the it's on the table. That's uh, a lot. Finally. Yeah. And like you said, it's remarkable progress, especially to people that know just how bad it is in terms of yeah. the, the real abuses that we've seen. And I, I'm going to I, I've taken too much of your time. I'm going to wrap it up with the final issue. It may be probably the the most emotional maybe to a degree it's the refugee population and hundreds of thousands of syrian palestinian refugees in lebanon and i mean enough has been said unfortunately about the palestinian plight and and more recently the syrian plight in lebanon but it's i'm, I'm gonna sort of try to narrow down this very big topic i saw lots of disenfranchised groups uh speaking their mind in October, November, December. And I also saw refugee population. I saw refugees on the streets too, cheering on the protest movement. So it's almost like a universal cause at that point. But in terms of refugee rights in Lebanon, that huge story, and then the severe restrictions you see on this population, is there anything positive happening right now? I mean, and this includes, by the way, UNRWA losing a lot of its budget. You correct me if I'm wrong, the U.S. was the largest contributor to UNRWA, and they, they stopped altogether. And, and 
there's many sort of there's just there's money that's not there money that should be there it's not there and you have the population not going anywhere anytime soon so just i mean it may be a sad way to end this episode but from your from your side is there anything that's that's hopeful for the refugee population i will try to end on a hopeful note <laughs> um so i'll start by saying that over the years unfortunately seen very xenophobic and racist rhetoric from leading politicians in the country trying to scapegoat uh, Lebanese, uh, trying to scapegoat Syrian refugees for all of Lebanon's problems. Yeah. We have a trash crisis, oh it's because Syrians, Syrian refugees yeah. are here. We right. have pollution, oh it's because Syrian refugees are here. Yeah. Economic crisis, Syrian refugees took all of our resources. Yeah. Um, so, and unfortunately for a time it seemed to be working. We did see that this xenophobic rhetoric by politicians was being translated in increasing hostility towards refugee populations and in you know, some people buying this narrative that we are where we are today because of you know Syrian refugees. What was really uplifting and hopeful in the protests were that people saw through all the bullshit, excuse my French, um, and they <laughs> <laughs> and they were I, I won't that. push the censorship button on that one. <laughs> you, you can use that word. <laughs> um, and they were able to see that actually the cause of Lebanon's economic crisis and Lebanon's problems was not Syrian refugees. It was yeah. these politicians who had controlled the country for more than 30 years who were corrupt, who were stealing public funds, who were mismanaging public funds, who you know prioritized their own interests over those of the people. So that, that you know, was very clearly uh, pronounced during the Lebanon protest. Yes. So at nowhere in the protest did you see people blame refugees for Lebanon's problems. That's the true. That's anger true. was very much directed at the political class. Yeah. And then you had this, um, you know, a lot of the chants were really quite progressive and you had chants that prior, you know, that were championing women's rights, uh, LGBT rights, transgender people rights, refugee rights. There was this recognition. All that, disenfranchised groups in Lebanon. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There was this recognition that we wanted to build a society where we were all equal, that, where we were all, you know, treated equally and not mm -hmm. discriminated against. And it was very hopeful to see that refugees were included in this list of marginalized populations. I remember this yeah. one protest, the Women's March in in Lebanon. It was quite a big uh, march, and it had you know, thousands of people chanting for refugee rights. It's really not something that I could have imagined happening in Lebanon even, you know, a few days before that, that march happened. So yeah. it was incredibly uplifting and it gave me hope for what's to come. So the hope comes in the protest movement's ability to keep protesting. That it's not, an, it's not a, they're not going home, that their demands are unmet. I think it comes for me in the, the, protesters' recognition of the key source of Lebanon's problems mm. and also a recognition or kind of a, you know, a vision of a state that they wanted to build that was based on the principles of equality and non-discrimination. To me, that was the most uplifting in the pro you know, protests. Whether or not we achieve that, you know, only time will tell. Unfortunately, politicians have spent 30 years making, you know, 
embedding themselves into the state and its institutions. Yeah. Um, but the rec you know the realization that there were you know thousands you know hundreds of thousands of other people in Lebanon who dreamed of a Lebanon that I would dream of, and to me that really was um, incredible. You found a way to end it on a hopeful note. <laughs> I try. Oh, you did it. I am going to say thank you for a few reasons. Number one, it's past 10 p.m. and you're still talking to me. Uh, number two, uh, for helping document the moment. If we don't get it right this time, I hope we do. But in case we don't, at least we leave behind the lessons learned. That if we're going to try this again down the road, it's clear what we got right and perhaps what we didn't. But it seems like in June, uh, eight months into this protest movement, that so long as these demands are not met, the average Lebanese today is unwilling to tolerate an abnormal society. And that's in all sort of areas. And I, I know that there's many other issues we could have uh, touched on, but I can't keep you for 10 hours. And uh, I, I also want to add one thing. I, I've been very lucky. I've met Human Rights Watch staff for many years. I used to give a walking tour in Beirut and they would show up. Whenever there was a transition or rotation, I would meet the new staff. I used to, I still am good friends with Nadim Houdi, who was the previous director That's of Human great. Rights. I've actually talked to him from his new sort of a throne Arab reform initiative in Paris. But it's clear that you guys are doing a great job in at least helping transition the Lebanon we know, which is a post-civil war mess, into a decent state. And I, I hope we live long enough to see that happen. Thank you, Aya. I appreciate it. Thank your time. you very much for having me on. This was a great conversation. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.